0: Imagine you are a pregnant, enslaved woman who just felt the pangs of her first contractions. You worked a full day in the fields, your hands are sore, your feet and palms struck open to the flesh, and you're exhausted, and yet, you feel that first sharp contraction in your underbelly. You curse, motioning to your husband to get the plantation's medicine woman. Your owner is not fond of African medicine when it comes to birthing children, but you know the plantation doctress, an old wizened woman who has been delivering babies since she herself was a girl, is a much safer bet than the white doctor who sometimes makes calls on the plantation. As another contraction rips up your abdomen, you pray you can get the medicine woman before the overseer or any of your nosy neighbors notices something amiss and reports your labor to the plantation master. You are horrified at the idea of a white doctor's cold, dispassionate hands to be the first ones guiding your newborn into this world. And not simply because of the sentiment, you remember the time he came by to calling your neighbor's small son, and instead bled him to the point of near death. You've heard other stories, mothers flayed open and only growing sicker under the oppressive, godless attentions of the storied local physicians. Plantation mistresses even avoided their questionable skill for the practiced touch of an experienced midwife when they could. You shut your eyes as the next round of contractions contorts your core. You pray a midwife is on the way and that God slows the local physician steps. You are about to receive a crash course in how social power dynamics shape the patient-physician relationship in the antebellum South, and how enslaved peoples use medicine not just for their healing, but as a form of resistance. These are power dynamics that shape the health of Black people and their relationship with the medical establishment to this day. You are listening to a medical history in color. A medical history in
1: color. Did you get that?
0: I'm Adrian, I'm a third-year medical student. And I'm a first-generation Black American. I'll also be one of the first, the first doctor in my family.
2: I'm Martha. Hi, guys. Welcome back. I will be the, I shouldn't say am because I'm not a physician yet, but I will be the first physician in my family. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been really interesting thinking about it, about Mm -hmm. being the first one. What are some of the things you think about it? I think just realizing that, especially being a Black physician realizing that oftentimes i'll probably be the only black physician in the room Mm -hmm. and not having my family to like understand what it's like Mm. so i've really been thinking a lot about it if i want to like practice in america or if i want to go back home to ghana to practice Mm. just because i don't want to be the only one
0: yeah for me it's been weird because for me my grandmother is the only other healthcare or was the only other healthcare person in my family like she came here from bahamas um to train as a nurse and i feel like When I notice, I guess the times when I notice, okay, I will be the first person in my family who's a physician is, you know, those times when your parents don't get what you're doing, basically, they like want you to come home, they want you to make more frequent calls, they don't understand why you can't be there for certain events, and them not realizing, I guess, how isolating medical practice can be and Mm -hmm. medical education can be. Another thing also is that I have not come to trust the medical establishment anymore (laughs) as a student. No. No, like I even, you know, like I had good relationships with my doctors and primary care provider when I was growing up. But as I got older, you know, this kind of cultural distrust starts to seep in Mm -hmm. where you're just kind of like, okay, what are the doctors doing to you? Are they explaining things to you properly? Are they giving you medications that are actually the right medications for you? Are they trying to poison you or something like that? Right. And I, I don't outright think anyone's trying to poison me, but there definitely is kind of this wariness like I avoid the doctor. Unless it's literally like life or death, like an emergency if I have to. Yeah. And it's interesting because we're doing this podcast and naturally I'm finding out as we do more and more research that that wariness, I'm not basically, I'm not alone in you're that not, wariness. you crazy. Right. And it has a very long history that belies my kind of ambivalence with the medical establishment.
2: So in America we talk a lot about Tuskegee mm-hmm. trials. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that we talk about, either right. Tuskegee or Sims. It's everyone's favorite ethics ethics study kinda yeah. of, sort of. But we have things even before the Tuskegee experiments that don't speak well of the medical establishment. They really don't. So this is, like, the Tuskegee experiment is just, like, the cusp Mm -hmm. of everything that's been done to us as Americans or black Americans. Mm -hmm. And this trust isn't about black people being paranoid. But, but the medical system has earned this, mis- uh, this distrust. Mm-hmm. And Harry A. Washington, who wrote a fabulous book, by the way, we're not, uh, we're not sponsored, but uh, <laughs> you guys should read it. It's called Medical Apartheid. Mm-hmm. But in this book, she calls it iatrophobia, mm-hmm. which is a fear of medical care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in this podcast, we're sort of going to take a step back and we're going to go back into the antebellum South and sort of look at the patient-physician relationship. Mm-hmm. and look at the relationship between the black patients and the physicians and how it was distorted. Distorted by, obviously, slavery, mm-hmm. and by the slave owners and the social hierarchy at that time. Right. So, like, when
0: we think of a patient-physician relationship now,
2: you think of the
0: doctor, the patient, and those are the only two people that have to be involved in the care. Right. But in the antebellum South, Medicine did not work for the patient. If you're talking about a black patient, it actually doctors worked for the slave owners. Mm -hmm. So doctors, their job in the antebellum South, I think we spoke previously in our last episode about how a lot of their revenue was generated by doing plantation medicine. Basically, they were calling on, you know, enslaved people and on plantations and performing those sort of plantation calls, taking care of all of these, what were considered, I guess, like the regular rudimentary health issues at the time. But in addition to that, doctors also kind of, they were sort of appraisers of slaves that you could say are enslaved people. So it wasn't just that doctors came and took care of enslaved patients. They were people who were also, to a certain extent, protecting the investment of the slave master. So there's this concept called soundness that's based in the Chattel Principle. The what? Chattel? 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 You mean chattel? <laughs> okay, the Chattel Principle. <laughs> And this is the principle that dictates that black people were no more than what is it, movable property. So you have movable, you have immovable property, which is like land, and then mm-hmm. you have immovable property, which is like a cow, or apparently at this time a slave a and cow. slave person, yeah, a cow and an enslaved person, exactly the
2: same, exactly okay.
0: livestock and slave person. And so you know, this is the chattel principle, and so the chattel principle it dictates that. When you're a physician who's caring for Black people during this time, everything that you do is constantly going to be through the lens, even on your best day, right? On a day where you see your patients as close to human as you possibly can, you're always going to be viewing your patient as property and the property of someone else, meaning that you defer to the slave owner about that patient's care. So the care of the patient wasn't really about how healthy the enslaved person saw themselves, about the enslaved person actually being well. It was more about how do I preserve the value of this person from when I bought them off the auction block? How do I make sure that I could basically continue to reap my investment from this person in the form of them actually being able to um, pick, what is it, cotton, tobacco, or any of the goods at that time that plantations were growing? Or how do I make sure that if I have to sell this person, that I'm basically getting the return on what I paid for them originally, that I'm not losing any money? And so the concept of soundness was created around that principle. The concept mm-hmm. of the soundness wasn't about the enslaved person being healthy, but instead their capacity to labor, reproduce, obey, and submit. So this is how we're defining
2: soundness. And none of these actually, well, I shouldn't say none, maybe reproduce but and labor, but... N- the rest okay, obey and submit have nothing to do with their like well being or their Yeah, and even when as you, humans. But they weren't humans, right? So I guess. When you look at
0: reproduce, like there's something different there to the word reproduce, right? Versus saying like their ability to prosper and have children or whatever the case might be. Reproduce it's again putting black people in this position where they're kind of being compared to livestock mm-hmm. where it's not about you know you having children and rearing those children and being able to you know to kind of participate in a healthy family dynamic it's about your ability to make more enslaved, enslaved. people mm-hmm. to you know power the plantation workforce and you would think that this meant that enslaved people should be treated better right they're seen as something that's valuable more valuable Actually, second in value only to property at the time Mm -hmm. was the valuation of enslaved people. And so you would think that meant that slave owners would go, oh, okay, I should take better care of this person. That means that I should make sure their health is in Mm tip-top shape. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case because there's still a difference between viewing someone as a human who you want to be in tip-top shape and viewing someone as, like, a cow or a coffee maker that you want to be in top shape.
2: The thing is, even... Even things that are not human, that people want to keep in tip-top shape. Like, let's say you bought a car that you really love, right? Mm -hmm. People obviously didn't have, like, Teslas back then. But let's say they got a Tesla back then, and it's super expensive, and it's worth a lot to them, Mm -hmm. right? They would spend more and care more about the Tesla than the slave or the enslaved person. And Mm -hmm. I think that really speaks to how much hatred there was mm-hmm. for enslaved people that even though they were your most valuable asset or second to property mm-hmm. you still didn't treat them that they, as if they were valuable
0: mm-hmm. so viewing enslaved people through the prism of you are property first and then not at all human. I can't even say human second, you kind of had this tier of importance or tiers of importance or hierarchy of importance that's naturally develops, right? So if you're an older enslaved person, no matter what your knowledge base might be, short of you actually being someone who was like a good doctress on the plantation, you are seen as less valuable than someone who could actually work or still have children. So if you're a woman on the plantation, your value is being based to a certain extent on The childbearing years that you still have left in you, like how often you carry children to term and carry healthy enslaved people to term from the standpoint of the doctor and the master. So this is kind of how this appraisal process is going when you're writing the doctor and they're kind of gauging the slave's health and, you know, repairing whatever they need to repair on the slave to make them, you know, more sound or to increase their soundness. And also another thing that doctors were doing at the time, so besides just appraising the slave and appraising their value for the master, they're also, to a certain extent, weeding out if slaves are faking. So before the doctor actually gets there, the plantation owner hears a complaint from the slave, let's say I'm a slave person and I have a cough. You might say, and a persistent cough too, I have a cough and I'm coughing blood. And then you, the slave owner, like... No, I think you're faking to get out of work. So that's that's coughing <laughs> the- blood. Okay, <laughs> so that's the first line of defense, right? And so then the doctor and the slave owner are having their own separate conversation about the slave's health. Like, is this person faking? I don't know. Can you give them something to see if they're faking? Can you mm-hmm. you know can you put together some sort of scenario to figure out if this person is trying to trick me, mm-hmm. and make sure that they don't you know produce cotton because you know slaves were seen as spiteful and wicked and needing constant. <laughs> Needing constant supervision to make sure that they weren't up to any sort of trickery or chicanery. So the doctor physician or the patient physician relationship at this time is not it doesn't resemble anything like what we think of when we think of the patient physician relationship, you know, after years of ethical study and what have you infused into medicine.
2: Yes it is really interesting cuz now when we think about the patient physician relationship there are lots of things like we talk about informed consent we talk about autonomy and and especially autonomy is super important in western mm-hmm. culture and looking back at these times the patients had no autonomy they had mm-hmm. no way to give consent even if let's say even if the the enslaved person said, yes, you know, I want to go ahead and listen to the doctor and do what the doctor says I could. That technically wasn't consent because they had no autonomy over themselves, Mm -hmm. over their bodies, because they were owned by someone else. Mm -hmm. And things like this ended up causing mistrust in the medical system. Mm -hmm. So the doctors that would come because black bodies were being exploited. So no one cared about if they were healthy or if they were happy or thriving, but it was mostly about exploiting their bodies. How much can we get out of these people? Mm-hmm. So, and by doing that, they were, basically, patients were cursed into getting care. Mm-hmm. So, the people that were enslaved would be experimented on in the hospital. So, let's say they wanted medical attention, but obviously they couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. One, I mean, they were enslaved people. And then, two, there's a uh, slave owner also had to give permission. So mm-hmm. one way around it, for both the enslaved person and for the slave owner, was medical schools. So, you mm-hmm. know, earlier in the first episode, we talked about the medical system, or the medical schools were just getting, like, standardized mm-hmm. these days. So with that, what they, what happened was people did not want to use their bodies for like medical experiments. I mean, nobody right. trusted these hooligans. Like I told you, they were hooligans back then, right? And hospitals were different too. Like mm-hmm.
0: hospitals were not like, you know, somewhat separate institutions from medical schools like they could be now. They really were just groups of doctors and medical students at the time, mm-hmm. like these kind of like loosely formed groups for people who wanted to practice
2: on people. Mhm. So, obviously, no one no one's trust, no one trusts them, but they were like, mm-hmm. "Oh, you know what we can do? We we'll go to poor white people and slaves." Mm-hmm. They can't say no. Right. I mean, they're poor, and the other, the other group is enslaved. So mm-hmm. obviously, we, they have to um, give us their bodies to use. That's what ended up happening. So Todd Savitt wrote this in his book. He said, The slave population of the city and the neighboring plantations is capable of furnishing ample materials for clinical instructions. Mm-hmm. So imagine that. You're just ample material. You're not even a human being, just considered right. material such as like ample clinical material. Yeah, how mm-hmm. insane! Like imagine we went and like discussed our patients, like in third year, like third and fourth year clinical mm-hmm. rotations, and then talked about our patients. Like yeah, wow, she's just ample. <laughs> well, wow. I mean, no, seriously, because I've definitely been in ORs and
0: mm-hmm. I've been in clinical encounters mm-hmm. where. I do think that sometimes some physicians Mm. and some residents have a tendency to speak about their patients as though they're less than human, Human. as though Mm. they are only there for clinical instruction, for our clinical instruction.
2: So that's kind of an eerie resemblance. I guess we haven't changed that much. Okay. We're trying. (laughs) So continuing on, the enslaved people were used Mm -hmm. and poor white people were used. Mm -hmm. And also back then using bodies for anatomy was illegal like dead mm. bodies and obviously people cared care about their loved ones who've died so they don't they didn't want to give over their loved ones bodies to be used by these hooligan medical students mm-hmm. so what they did is guess what they obeyed the law no. so, <laughs> of course not so what they did was that they would either Hire some like random white person, or mm-hmm. they would ask one of the slaves to steal bodies from the plantation,
0: mm, like contract an enslaved yeah. person
2: and steal bodies from the plantation. Mm -hmm. to use for their like not autopsies but for like anatomy lab Mm -hmm, for their dissections Mm -hmm. or anatomical dissections because
0: at this time also medicine still heavily revolves around surgery actually at this time too so a lot of medical innovation and a lot of medical research is focused on what is essentially surgical techniques or the rough versions of surgical techniques so anatomy is really heavily focused on and that's basically a huge basis of medical education at that time and so You need these bodies constantly to make sure that they're there for medical students and clinicians to cut into so that they can understand the human condition. Mm -hmm. Presumably, that's that's the eloquent way that you would put it. Understand the human condition Mm -hmm. versus like, you know, butcher the human. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that you kind of see here. So we're talking about how you have these people who are contracted to steal mm. bodies from graves. And this is another, this was really humbling for me because there's kind of these old wives tales or what we call old wives tales about like, you know, night doctors and people stealing bodies from from graveyards. But that was a real thing. That was a real thing continuing into as recently as the 1960s, I believe schools contracted individuals to steal bodies for anatomy lab. And so what you see here in this willingness to desecrate slave bodies is this very clear, clear, clear division between how white practitioners see health and how black enslaved people see health. Mm -hmm. Because while in both cultures, Western Christian culture and African diaspora cultures if you could use that word? If that's a word. No it is. Yeah. You see that there's this there's all these ideas that revolve around basically like the sanctity of someone's dead body and mm-hmm. what happens to their soul when you know when you desecrate their body. And so white patients didn't want to give their bodies to the science, but white practitioners were willing to take those bodies from enslaved people or take enslaved people's bodies even after they had passed on to performed a ridiculous amount of labor in their life. Mm-hmm. So you have this person who Works and toils the land their entire life, dies, and then even in death. They can't have peace. Exactly. You take them and you use them for anatomical study, again, for the medical establishment. And so, you know, as I said earlier in this episode, you kind of see this theme where it's not just Tuskegee. You see that there is a very long history of white practitioners not believing in the sanctity of black bodies mm-hmm. and treating mm-hmm. black people as human, even mm-hmm. when they're supposed to be their patients. Mm-hmm. So another thing is that you see a rejection of Black spiritualism at the time. So at the time, the medical establishment was trying to move further and further away from what they saw, I guess, as like, I guess, less refined ideas about science and about, um, yeah, about science and how the world works. So at this time, you see them start to put increasing distance between themselves and, you know, religious infusion in medical practice. And so you have to remember that everything that's being done at this time is being viewed through the lens of the social structure there. So it's like you have Black people and white people who are coexisting in the South, and one group is an oppressed group, and the other group is the oppressor. Mm -hmm. And so everything is colored by those roles. And so... You have white practitioners who saw any sort of practice that slaves did, whether it was actual, like, medical practice, whether it was about the religious practice, seeing those things as superstitious and less um, worthy of respect mm-hmm. than any of the yes, white them. practitioners' <laughs> tools or any of their practices. Even, Even when those though, practices... Yeah, it was like- Yeah, those practices weren't sound practices. They weren't evidence-based at the time. They didn't know
2: anything. No, they
0: did not know anything. They knew even less than some of their enslaved people because Mm -hmm. some of these enslaved people, they're coming from families that have practiced for generations, that have been midwives for generations, herbalists for generations, medicine men and conjurers for generations. And then you have, like, you know, a white American practitioner who just showed up and said, I think I want to be a doctor. (laughs) Who's basically disparaging this enslaved person and not disparaging them because they don't see value in their practices, Mm -hmm. but disparaging them simply based on the social hierarchy at the time. So the thing is, we talk about white practitioners practices, their practices were actually dangerous at the time. It's not that you would not get any sort of relief if a doctor came to you but you know think about how now if a doctor takes care of a patient let's say something like between 70 80 maybe even 90 percent of the time your patient has to leave feeling better like there's this very consumer based model mm-hmm. of medicine that we're on now but at this point you could have done you could have made your patient feel worse <laughs> and somehow, you were still a practicing physician. People would still come to you and give you money and give their business. So popular methods of medical practice at the time for white practitioners were bleeding their patients. So there was a lot of theory that revolved around the idea of getting people to expel bodily fluids. So I need to make you vomit as much as possible. I need to make you have as much diarrhea as possible. Like all these things to expel illness, no matter what the symptoms were. So let's say someone came to me with a cough. I say, you know what you probably need? (laughs) <laughs> you need a laxative. And so calomel was their favorite laxative of choice. Calomel, a favorite, and what's called jalap laxatives. So calomel is a compound of mercury and chlorine. And so for any medical complaint that you had, whether you were a white person or a black person, but especially if you were an enslaved person, a white physician would go, you know what, I really think you need some calomel and some jalap, and that'll fix your write-up. And it did not fix you right up. It made you sicker. And also keep in mind that we're talking about a group of people that already has mm-hmm. nutrient deficiencies. Yeah. So they're not being fed well. They're only being fed. fed what do we say, hominy? <laughs> hominy and bacon. And so they're only they're being fed this nutrient deficient diet. They're living in terrible, unsanitary conditions. So their health is already really poor. So imagine taking a person like this and making them expel. A ridiculous amount of bodily Mm -hmm. fluid. Making them vomit a ridiculous amount of bodily fluid. Really depleting... The little nutrients (laughs) that they have. Exactly. depleting the nutrients and fluids that they have in their body. So that was another one. Again, in the same vein, they were really fond of bloodletting. You're just talking about pure bloodletting. They just cut you. Cutting you and bleeding you to get rid of the impurities in your body. And this was medical practice. This was the superior... The superior Western medical practice of the time. Um, so we talked a little bit about Thomas Jefferson last time too, and he always th- pops up. He does, and you know, I really <laughs> think Thomas Jefferson is like an enslaved people stand, like Loki, like because he pops up in all these stories. But apparently, Thomas Jefferson is also a doctor stand. So he's an amateur physician scientist.
2: How do you how how <laughs> imagine today? Oh, I'm an amateur doctor. What does that mean? What does that mean? Okay. I'm an amateur doctor. I dabble in medicine dabble in my <laughs> <I> spare time. <laughs> Once in well, while, I like to go to the hospital and put on a white coat. You remember the, um... The boy? The
0: boy who tricked... But his- he still took that more seriously, and he had the right idea, because that's literally what being a doctor was like at the time, minus the white coat. He didn't even have to have the white coat. You know? All that to say is here, you see Thomas Jefferson again, trying his best to be like a doctor... And he had even advised, and this is something that Thomas Jefferson actually had, right? He was like, man, never bleed a Negro because they are nutrient deficient and they will not survive
2: <laughs> this procedure. Never exactly bleed like that. a Negro. Man, comma.
0: Exactly. <laughs> never bleed a Negro, and quote, quote unquote. So it's important to emphasize that enslaved people didn't just practice medicine out of pure resistance to white medicine or the white medical establishment. Okay. Enslaved people were people who had their own cultures okay. and their own history before being bought or brought against their will to be enslaved on a plantation and being bloodlet and given laxatives ad infinitum and put in terrible and sanitary conditions. So they had their own practices that were from their different um, African tribes Absolutely. and regions
2: and stuff. And it's not like, I think it's really interesting how... Some people think, like, when they came to um, the Americas was when they first experienced medicine. Because if they didn't have medicine back then, where they came from, like, they would all be dead. Right. But clearly, there was a, there were enough people for the Americans to come and take them and put them mm-hmm. into slavery. So clearly, they were doing something fine. Like, yeah. they were doing something well. They had their own medical practices. They mm-hmm. had a way to keep themselves healthy. mm mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so, like in some of the research that we were doing for this episode, it's not just that enslaved people had these practices and they preferred these practices, these practices were a form of resistance to being enslaved, but they were also practices that took into account the relational view of health that Black patients had. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thing, because when we talk about the relational view of health, you sometimes hear the word relational, but really what you hear more often is socioeconomic determinants of of health. health. We Mm -hmm. have all this very fancy academic jargon that basically means that you need to be taking into account a patient's context and their environment when informing, um, when making a health diagnosis for them or Mm -hmm. treating them as a physician. Mm -hmm. And so African people at this time, this was the view that they already had of health. They weren't calling it socioeconomic determinants (laughs) of health, but really they felt like in order for you to treat someone, truly treat someone and actually heal their their illness, make them feel better, you had to know about the environmental context they came from, the cultural context that they came from. Mm -hmm. You had to know the relationships and you had to have a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Black people did not have physicians who they did not have some form of relationship with With, physicians were esteemed people in their communities as well and they weren't just esteemed because of scientific knowledge scientific knowledge was seen in tandem or basically having a huge tie to religious understanding too and religious discernment so these people weren't just healers they were healers and they were conceived as wise men and women they were people that were consulted for their wisdom in the community in the last episode we looked at what some of the medical field looked like after it began to take shape and became more structured so about the 1700s we saw black physicians who had received some degree of formal training this is the late 1700s again so relative to the time period that they practice in you see some of these practitioners they've gained a certain level of knowledge they did their apprenticeships we talked about james durham we talked about mccune smith and then you saw that they also received overseas training However, before this, there's an established record of Black healers practicing in the States because, again, they're bringing these practices from their homelands. So before you even had apprenticeship, before you had them traveling to Sweden or wherever to get medical degrees, you had Black practitioners who were coming from a place of experience and were using a relational health model in order to treat their patients. this is what I want to do. I don't want to be a doctor that's always just like pushing pills, pushing this. I want to be one that remembers my patient's stories and treats them individually for their, like for their case. Okay. That makes sense. So give me three words that you would describe. or you to describe the type of physician that you were trying to be? Um, compassionate. Um, individualized. And um, I guess the last one would be gentle, because a lot of times doctors are not gentle. Like someone that patients don't feel scared to go to, even in their adulthood, they're not like, oh gosh, I have to see doctor so-and-so today. I want them to be like, oh, I am so excited about this appointment, Let me let me go early. <laughs>
2: their own and they also learned how to use the herbs of native u.s soil because mm-hmm. they're intelligent people mm-hmm. so they see that things work right so i'm going to go through some of the stuff that they used mm-hmm. so there there was arrowhead and it was worn as a necklace and what they did is they gave it to babies that were teething because it helped drop pain and fever Aww. i thought that was really cute mm-hmm. and then there was this plant called excuse my pronunciation Karenso Caranco, Carenco, so mm-hmm. something like that. And this was used for arthritis, among other things. Mm-hmm. We had Jimson weed, which, which was used for um, rheumatism. Mm-hmm. Um, there was chestnut leaf tea. They made it into a tea, which was used for asthma. Mm-hmm. They had this thing called devil's dung, or stinking gum, which is also called, excuse my uh, pronunciation again, fet. Fedi, fedi.
0: Fatita? Fatita. Yeah, that was a big Fatita one. I saw that one come up a lot. It
2: came up a lot. And it was used for a number of things. First of all, it said it, the book made sure to tell me, or to tell the readers, that it smelled really bad. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was called Devil's Dung. But it was used as a preventative measure. So they would use it against whooping cough, bronchitis, mm. smallpox, influenza. And um, it was also antimicrobial. so it actually prevent, So it actually did prevent a lot of mm. these things. So a lot of the times they would wear it around their neck. So that, it smelled so bad, but so that the smell would open up congested airways and kill harmful bacteria. So this is like
0: Vicks. This is their yeah, Vicks. Rub. This yeah, Vicks Yeah.
2: <laughs> and then they would use burdock root, which was also antibacterial, antifungal, it was mm. a diuretic. They used it on gout, they used it for blood purification. And they also, not not only did they have these herbs, they also had people to administer these herbs. So they had their own sort of system with doctors and doctresses. Mm -hmm. And then um, who took care of the people on the plantation. Mm -hmm. And the plantation owners had to rely on them to, like, if they didn't call the white doctors over, they had to rely on these doctors or doctresses to take care of their mm-hmm. enslaved people. And
0: even if they had a white doctor come, the white doctor was someone who really just gave instruction. So, another thing that I thought was interesting is there you see this division historically that starts to form between what's considered medical care and what's considered caretaking. Which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. So it seemed like the role of the physician is to turn up and go. You know what? You need however many drops of this oil or this weed or whatever the case might be. And then the doctresses were actually the people who were applying these treatments oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And if they weren't, and if they weren't applying the white doctor's treatments, they had their own treatments that they were using um, from their knowledge base that they had carried with them mm-hmm. from their homeland. Mm-hmm.
2: And I also, I mean, honestly, if you think about it. Why would the doctor, especially when they were looking at the enslaved person as less than human, Mm -hmm. take care of the enslaved person? Like, why would they stay? Because they don't think of them as human or as really worth much. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't. They wouldn't want to care for them. It's interesting
0: though, because even when you're not considering enslaved people, it seems like you start seeing that doctors consider caretaking beneath, beneath them. Because mm-hmm. again, they're looking at these roles through um, through the prism of the social hierarchy at the time. So remember, we talked about white people and black people, but we also talk about there's men and there's women, mm-hmm. and so things that are traditionally seen as caretaking or feminine, were, exactly, were feminine things, mm-hmm. feminine and non scientific things. So like a lot of the actual labor of actually taking care of a sick person, the proximity to their bodily excrement, all of those things were relegated to the task of um, women in the household. So this is white women, but this is also a black woman or their doctoresses. And so they're the people who are cleaning up people's wounds. They're applying the treatments that the doctors tell them to. They're making sure that they're in sanitary conditions when possible, if you're not talking about an enslaved person, I guess. And they're the persons who are actually carrying out the task of healing. Mm -hmm. versus the doctor shows up and at this time doesn't necessarily diagnose because that's apparently not required of a physician (laughs) at the time and he gives instructions and the people follow those instructions and make their own adjustments to those instructions instructions, depending Mm -hmm. on their knowledge base Mm -hmm. and that's what you find the black doctresses doing
2: oftentimes Mm -hmm. so along those lines with basically the women being the caretakers. We also have midwives, too. Mm-hmm. And midwives were a cornerstone of... even Not even enslaved people, but just as society as a whole, especially women, specifically as a whole, all women needed midwives. Mm-hmm. And you had midwives that were African that were brought into the U.S. who had been practicing for like years and years they probably came from like families that had produced midwives for the communities or the tribes that they were in back Mm -hmm. then so they were very experienced people and they continued to practice midwifery Mm -hmm. while they were enslaved and also taught other women in the plantation to to do the same thing and Mm -hmm. sort of yeah to do the same thing So what was better about midwives than calling the doctor was that they were more experienced and they actually used antiseptic practices, which hadn't yet been incorporated into Western medicine. Mm -hmm. So they would boil the rags, they would boil, um, they would boil rags, medical Mm -hmm. instruments, actually make it clean for their patients. Mm -hmm. And they also provided abortions, Mm -hmm. but that's a different topic. Mm -hmm.
0: I think what's funny here, too, is that you start to see that the medical establishment didn't seem to take much interest in women's health for a really long time. So you really had women who had like a wealth of experience in this topic who were actually in charge of all things, I guess, woman related. Mm -hmm. So birthing babies, abortions or any sort of like mystical woman problem. (laughs) was under the purview of a midwife. You had African midwives, but you also had midwives that were coming from Europe and were European immigrants. And these women actually birthed babies throughout most of the 1900s. Like, most babies were being birthed by midwives. Midwives. They were not being birthed by physicians yet. So with that being said, there comes a period in history where physicians do suddenly become interested in women's health. because, (laughs) Because they see that it is a constant source of... Money. Money. Profits. So they start trying to push the midwives out of their practice. Mm -hmm. And again, to recall the social divisions at the time, you have black people and white people, but then you also have men and Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. And so what physicians started doing is essentially waging a smear campaign against midwives using slurs that hearkened to either their status as a black person if you're talking about a black midwife or their status as women who are unscientific so you have this division in medical care where there's caretaking feminine science doctoring masculine and so doctors started painting midwives techniques as unscientific and started what's called medicalizing birth Mm -hmm. so they started to assert that birth was now not a natural condition that required a midwife's assistance. It was instead a pathological condition that required medical intervention. Mm-hmm. They basically put Black women and then women at the bottom of the clinical totem pole. Mm-hmm. So you see doctors start to take real interest in their political prospects, but also their economic prospects. And so in order to secure their financial, their financial gains, they had to become more vested in policy and in publishing papers that complemented the policies they were trying to push through. Mm -hmm. So the AMA becomes really invested in the idea of pushing midwives out of practice. Doctors as a whole, seeing that there's money to be made, are more active, it would seem at the time, in the AMA, and making sure that you can push midwives out of practice. And they start putting together laws that make it so that if you're a midwife, you can't practice without, for instance, an AMA um, membership. And Mm -hmm. at the time, you could only get an AMA membership if you were part of a group of physicians, and then honestly, a white man, and, You mm-hmm. black, um, black physicians, whether they had credentials or not, weren't even allowed in the AMA mm-hmm. at this
2: time. And another way that they used to smear midwives was, I did say abortion was another topic, but I do have to talk, um, mm-hmm. we won't get into the ethics of abortion, but I do want to mention mm-hmm. um, in a book called A Short History of Medical Ethics by Albert Johnson, mm-hmm. or Johnson, he discusses how abortion or abortions were performed by women. Mm. So they would either call them doctresses or wise women. Mm -hmm. And because American physicians wanted to enhance their reputation for moral responsibility and their own professional standing, they started to change the law about abortion. Mm -hmm. So abortion did not used to be considered a moral issue until white male doctors decided that the female female health care was their purview Mm -hmm. so what happened was that in the 1840s abortion became a social problem so doctors uh, white male doctors started like sensationalizing different uh causes or different abortion like cases started like sensationalizing it and saying like making it into a moral issue, saying, like, how disgusting and how evil abortion was. Mm-hmm. So, and the woman who performed it. And the woman who performed it. So mm-hmm. in a way, to get rid... So it was a way to get rid of the woman who performed it. Mm-hmm. So in 1857, there was a obstetrician in uh, Boston, and he was also a Harvard professor, who campaigned to... who wanted to organize regular physicians against abortion... In favor of stricter laws. Mm. So, what happened was they got the support of the AMA. Okay. Yep. And, and, and scary. The AMA on. and Thomas Jefferson <laughs> strikes again. <laughs> so they so they made this into some sort of criminal activity that that life became began at concep- conception and that they were destroying life and this wasn't. This wasn't even a religious issue because even before the clergy got involved in abortion being a religious issue, mm-hmm. the doctors were fighting to make it a moral and religious issue. Mm-hmm. So you can see it did not... It, so I thought it was very mm-hmm. fascinating when I read this, that abortion was not considered like a moral or religious issue
1: mm-hmm. until
2: people... till white male doctors or um, obstetricians, which were the only ones who were obstetricians were white men began to see that you know i can make money off of this because and... people will
0: always have to give birth yeah
2: and you know what like women shouldn't be doing this anyways so right in order to kick women out let me show how terrible midwives or doctresses are and how evil they are
1: and we've been able to go and see you know the conditions people are in um just the type of community support that they could use, whether it's maybe just donations salary wise, once I'm in that type of lane, or if it's the actual service that I can go back and do and hopefully have a continual um, stream of help. So.
0: When you say useful, what do you mean by useful?
1: Um, what do you mean? When like
0: a moment ago, you said that it's something that you can see being useful, being a doctor.
1: In terms of serving people in this, that specific way, in, in a a needed field and a needed service that I think specifically in the black community, if there aren't enough black positions, the need won't be filled. Um African positions that are gonna be willing to go back and serve African peoples, um and see them as not just some mission work, two week stop, goodbye. Um yeah. So what would
0: you say if I asked you to give three words of describe the type of position that you would
1: um philanthropist self-sacrificing and just willing Um, i hope those are the three things that people think about when they ask for you know geno's help in the future
0: So you have to remember that slavery isn't the origin of these social these social divisions that we keep talking about when we're talking about the hierarchy of practitioners and the social hierarchy at the time. Slavery was just the legal framework that enforced these social divisions and through which these social divisions were enacted oftentimes. And so not only did you have white male physicians who were trying to push out Black midwives and Black practitioners, they also started asserting that you could not practice autonomously at, as a Black practitioner. So let's say that you're an enslaved person. You always have to be practicing under the supervision, the supervision of a white physician, even if you had more knowledge than that physician, technically. Even if you came from a family of practitioners and have been practicing since you were like a wee girl. <laughs> you had to work under the supervision of a white physician because not only were you not seen as capable or a capable practitioner, people were also suspicious of you. So how Martha said that they're smearing midwives and they're smearing doctors, or black doctresses they're also remember we talked about these people as leaders in their community and so oftentimes when slave owners and white physicians and white people who wanted to keep the status quo in check were fearful of slaves organizing they actually looked to positions like the doctor the midwife the, the esteemed person on the plantation as being the person who would be in charge of stirring or organizing any sort of resistance. So they were also very worried that if they left Black practitioners to practice on their own, they would do things like poison them or do things to undermine the institution of slavery, undermine the workforce and undermine the goals of the slave master. Remember, like I said, the social divisions that we're looking at are social divisions that exist outside the context of slavery, but slavery... And the laws that are upholding these social divisions are basically just a legal framework for these social divisions. Mm
2: -hmm. And I want to take time to sort of acknowledge the contribution of enslaved people in today's medicine. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think they get enough credits. We talk about their bodies being used as experiments and their bodies just being used. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we, I don't think, not we, I don't think people necessarily discuss how it affects today's medicine.
0: Right, like talk about their real like, intellectual contributions.
2: Mm-hmm. So there was, when we talk about vaccines, which, you know, it's a hot topic today. Mm-hmm. Vaccines. Lots of hot topics in this episode. There, so many things <laughs> that we don't have things, time right? for. But vaccines. So we talk about the uh mm-hmm. for smallpox. So, mm-hmm. so he was the one that came up with the smallpox. Uh, smallpox vaccination and it was big and huge and I mean he contributed I'm not saying anything against him because obviously contributed a lot to medicine but I do want to talk about Onesimus who actually introduced a method of smallpox inoculation Mm. so before western medicine (laughs) before the great oh all-knowing western medicine yes back in Africa, the there homeland, the homeland, the motherland. <laughs> there was there was this guy who told this guy named Onesimus. So what happened was he was a slave of another guy called Cotton Mather, mm-hmm. and who was he was actually a clergyman. The, co- the guy who was called Cotton, Cotton Mather, Mather. Mm-hmm. he wasn't even a doctor; he was a clergyman. But he got he was like interested in medicine. So once again, these like amateur physicians, <laughs> scientists. Mm-hmm. But anyways, he was interested in medicine. And he had um, an enslaved person called Onesimus, and Onesimus told him. That in Africa they prevent a smallpox by transferring pus from an infected person to a healthy person, mm. and Mather was like, "Oh, that's interesting." <laughs> so he went and read another book and found out there were, like other people in other places. I think it was like some like Turkey or some place that were also doing it, and mm-hmm. then that's when he decided, "No, this may actually." Mm-hmm. have some, like, some validity. Mm-hmm. So he went and told the doctors in town. And
0: and weren't they having, like, a plague at that time? Yeah. Like, there was a smallpox, like... like
2: a, there was smallpox everywhere. There was a people.
0: pandemic, possibly. Not a <sighs> pandemic. I think it would no, just no, be an no, no, epidemic because no. it was local. <laughs> but, yes, there was a public health
2: crisis. Ironic. No, i joking. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a public health crisis, yeah. And Mather went and told the town doctors. And did they believe him? No. They didn't. <laughs> Because obviously, like, first of all, he's a pastor. He's a clergyman. Mm -hmm. And he got this information from a slave. So Mm -hmm. obviously, he doesn't know much. But Mm -hmm. one guy did listen, Dr. Boylston, Mm -hmm. and he listened. And his his patients had a 2% infection rate. Compared to the other doctors who didn't listen, their mm-hmm. patients had a 15% infection rate. Mm-hmm. So that's when they started listening. They're mm-hmm. like, mm, maybe maybe this guy had a thought. Yeah. Had a mis- You know, maybe he has something smart to say. Right. But I like how it came from an enslaved person. He had knowledge from Africa, from his home, that was valid. Mm-hmm. And yet he's erased out of uh, medical history. Even the development of obstetrics was... A contribution from black people yeah even even in the development of OBs, co- black people contributed a lot, so there was this guy, Marion Sims, which a lot I shouldn't say a lot, but many people do know about him, especially in medicine. Mm-hmm. And he is considered the father of gynecology. So he practiced and experimented his craft on black women, enslaved women. Mm -hmm. So there are three that we know that, like he used a lot more, but we know the names of three. There was Lucy, Betsy, and Anarcha. Anarcha. Anarcha?
0: I call her Anarcha because I think of like anarchy.
2: Oh, I like that. We'll call her Anarcha (laughs) Um, and Anarcha. And these women, they were experimented on, they either had a rectovaginal or vesicovaginal fistula. Mm -hmm. And Amirian Sims was like, you know what? I'm gonna fix these people. Mm -hmm. So he did his surgeries without anesthesia and and no pain medication. And he didn't even, like, wash his hands. He wasn't clean about it. Mm -hmm. And Anarka suffered through 13 surgeries to close her fistula. Oh my gosh. And he also discovered the use of the guess what medical instruments
0: forceps the retractor the retractor oh yes because Mm -hmm. he comes up with the primitive the primitive version of of the retractor Mm -hmm. which is at this point just like a a spoon Mm
2: -hmm.
0: if i remember correctly Mm
2: -hmm. and yeah so that's what he did that's what he used these enslaved women for and sadly even there's some people who say oh well like these people these enslaved women they gave their consent but remember that they're enslaved women they don't Mm -hmm. have autonomy and therefore they cannot give consent Mm -hmm. so he did all of this without any pain without any pain medication without any anesthesia without without consent Mm -hmm. and these women just had to suffer through it Mm -hmm. and when we learn about medicine or ob we don't talk about these women. Right. And would they contribute to today's medicine?
0: And the crazy thing is, it's not only that they contribute that in allowing their bodies, not allowing, but having to have their bodies be used for the this medical experimentation or surgical experimentation. You also see that Black women are less likely to benefit from that surgery after yeah, all right. that. So that vesicovaginal surgery that he developed, that's not a surgery that Black women were largely the benefactors of. White women were largely the benefactors of. Marion Sims developments and his apparent medical acumen mm-hmm.
2: so his him using enslaved women wasn't to help the enslaved women it was mm-hmm. to help white women mm-hmm. but he perfected it on enslaved women because obviously he can't do it on white women because you know right they're too precious right right they're so, too precious so you had to use enslaved women precious jewels yep well there was also another guy <laughs> i mean there's so much we can talk about but there's also um Ephraim McDowell. McDowell. Mm -hmm. And he is considered the father of abdominal surgery. Mm. And he also, once again, used enslaved women as his his subjects. Mm -hmm. And he developed a surgical treatment for ovarian cancer, which obviously is a great thing, but he did so using four women that were all enslaved. And one thing about him is that he also used white women for his experimentation, but once again we get into the issue of consent. These white women, it could be argued that they had autonomy. They had certainly had more autonomy than enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Certainly had more autonomy than enslaved people. Right. So keeping within the context of that time, the white women were given were giving Dr. McDowell their consent. Mm-hmm. These sl- enslaved women could not give consent. So once again we get into this issue of Mm -hmm. consent and people are still arguing this to this day like Mm -hmm. there's still papers that argue that we treat
0: Marion sims legacy unfairly because Mm -hmm. he did in fact ask for the enslaved woman's consent but again how much consent what does your consent count for when you are not even considered a person with autonomy or with the ability to have legal rights at this period of time Mm
2: -hmm. and i mean like when we talked about consent especially well, in today's time, we talk about informed consent, and you there are four components of informed consent that mm-hmm. a person needs to have. So one, you have to have the capacity to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Two, you have to, the medical provider has to disclose information about the treatment or the procedure. Mm-hmm. So you actually have to know what's happening. So benefits, the risks, and the likelihood of those benefits and risks. Number three, you must be able to comprehend the relevant information. Mm-hmm. And number four, you must voluntarily grant consent. They were without coercion or duress. They were absolutely not having these conversations. Exactly. With so I don't people. understand why these papers are being written about the, consent. Right. Cause you you should know, as a doctor, you should know what these four mm-hmm. these um four components of informed consent are.
0: So in summary Enslaved people received medical care, not as humans, but as the property of slave owners. Soundness was central to the relationship between white physicians and black enslaved patients. Enslaved people had their own relational view of health and their own medical techniques that they asserted their right to practice. And this was a form of resistance and making sure they kept their traditions, even as enslaved people. Medicine was not evidence-based at this point in history and was at times both dangerous and fraudulent. (laughs) And doctors had a turf war with non-Western medical practitioners. They began to aggressively minimize the role of these providers, i.e. the midwives, the doctoresses. So you see physicians at this point in time were very litigious. What they lacked in clinical experience and knowledge, they certainly made up for in aggressive politicking. But we also see that providers were seen through the lens of existing social divisions, i.e. it's impossible to separate white physicians view of black practitioners and patients from how they view black people in general. And we hear this idea echoed all the time, right? So we see this still play out subconsciously in our view of black medical students, black practitioners and black patients. I naturally connected this to the modern day turf war brewing between not just physicians and advanced practice providers, but honestly, between demographics in competition for medical school admission. This is something that is a sore point that we still talk about even while (laughs) (laughs) it's a medical school.
2: School,
0: What would be your take on that? This
2: is such a big, I think it's such a big thing topic to tackle because it's, even though you've gone into medical school, you've passed your MCAT, you're passing your classes, Mm -hmm. you hear whispers of, like, even your classmates sort of implying that got in because of special treatments and you're not intelligent enough to be at the same level as them. Mm -hmm. And even in the clinic, this shows a lot in clinical Mm. years. In the clinical years, when you have doctors or like attendings or even residents that will treat you differently or speak to you differently than your white or Asian counterparts, Mm -hmm. because there's this thought that you don't know as much as they do, or Mm -hmm. you didn't work enough, or you didn't have the Same intelligence to get into medical school,
0: Mm -hmm. even though you are in medical school. I'm
2: I'm here in medical school. I'm passing the test. I'm passing my tests, I'm passing my classes. Like, what more do I need to do to prove to you that I belong here? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely really interesting. I think one thing that's been really disheartening for me is I imagine that you would see this play out and how you're viewed as a student on Wards or in your third and fourth year rotations. But mostly, I think the most disheartening part for me has been sometimes how some of your classmates seem to view you as their colleague. It's like they still don't view you entirely as their colleague. I remember even someone telling me or asking me if I would have an easier time than her of getting into residency. And this wasn't this wasn't supported by any data or anything. I could imagine it was just on the fact that she thought that I must have had an easier time getting into med school because of the MCAT. So naturally people are just going to let me, you know, waltz on into their residency without meeting any sort, any sort, of, standard. <laughs> any sort of standards or a lower standard. Yeah. So it's a very pervasive issue. And so it honestly does remind me a lot of how, The white practitioners of yore had to severely exaggerate their qualifications, even when engaging in fraudulent medical practices, in order to distinguish themselves from black practitioners and providers that had more experience than them, because when I think about the idea of me allegedly getting into med school easier i was like was it easier for me to have less money for my mcat class was it easier for me to have to study with a different load than you like how was it actually easier for me to get into med school than you when it all comes down to it mm-hmm. and that's with medicine still being a a field and an educational an educational space that still privileges you know middle class people mostly mm-hmm. and upper class people
2: I, I i've also had an experience with like with my classmates where um, it would almost come as, like, a shock or the surprise that I did really well in undergrad. Mm-hmm. That I graduated summa cum laude. That I had all these honors. I had research. It's always like, oh, mm-hmm. you did all of that? And I was like, well, I mean, you got into med school, too. Didn't you have to do that to get here? hmm And why are you so surprised that I worked hard to get into medical school? Mm-hmm. That I didn't just waltz in because I was black?
1: hmm
0: yeah, it's very, very disheartening. So I think the biggest takeaways from this episode and this discussion are we really, really want to emphasize that the science and art of medical practice is not exclusively white and male. Like it never was really, never was. but never it, will be. it definitely is not now. It's not only Asian and it's not only even black. It is a practice informed by many backgrounds and peoples of all nations have contributed to medicine as we know it and the labor of enslaved people should not be discounted in the retelling of medical history. Martha and I are super passionate about bringing the experiences of Black medical students and practitioners to the forefront. Please share and review our content. Leave us feedback and share your experiences with us. Also, do not hesitate to share this with your non-Black friends because it is an educational tool. Yes.